This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, so I was asked to talk about the existence of God, and the very broad title of the talk was, Does God Exist? The answer is yes, and I guess my work is done. Um, but to be... To, to focus the talk a bit, I was asked to talk about things that would be interesting to people who are not Catholic. I don't really know what that is, but I'm going to do my best. I decided to focus on Aquinas since uh, this is the Thomistic Institute and I, that's what I do. I focus on Aquinas in my work. Um, so I thought I'd talk about Aquinas' proofs for God's existence. And as I'm sure many of you know, there are five in particular. But given the time constraints, trying to go over all five would be too much. So I'm really going to focus on what Aquinas considers to be the most evident of the five proofs, which is the first, uh, the argument from motion. And I'm going in particular to try to um, pull out some of the Greek influences from Aristotle, and then perhaps also a bit of the um, Aquinas's more contemporary influences from the Arabic world. And finally, I will also talk a little bit about Aquinas's second proof, because it's largely, it's quite similar to the first, but it kind of looks at the same problem from a different angle. So, okay, uh, to begin, I will say that the aim of, Arist of Aquinas' proof, and subsequently of this talk, is not necessarily to prove that the God of Christianity exists, but rather that God broadly considered exists, God as understood by a broad group of people. And we'll, we'll talk a bit more about what that means in a bit. So in other words, the proof doesn't, the proof doesn't demonstrate the existence of the triune God, for example, but it does show that there is a ground of all existence that is timeless, eternal, and the source of all that is. Okay, so I'm going to go through this first proof here line by line, explain the logic behind the distinctions that Aquinas is making. And in my opinion, each of the five proofs of Aquinas for God's existence is, is relatively easy to understand, but there are two things that can often impede one's comprehension of them. And the first is that uh, some of the words used in this proof have meanings in Latin that don't directly correspond to their English cognates or to their English translations. So the meaning of the Latin original has to be made clear. And the second thing that often impedes understanding these things is that we simply think differently than did ancient Greeks or than did medieval Europeans. And once you get into the right frame of mind, you get into the right mindset and understand being in a particular way, then I think that Aquinas' arguments follow pretty readily. Uh, and part of the evidence that he thinks that too is that you can look how short it is. It's very brief. I mean, he just, okay, you know, here's a paragraph, God exists, move on. And I think that he thought that the people for whom he intended this text probably would have thought the logic pretty straightforward. So it's simply, my role is one of clarification to make sure that the, the logical steps are clear. And I think that once they're made clear, then the conclusion follows pretty readily. All right, I'll say one more thing 
before I dive into the text. Uh, and that's that, again, the proofs do, according to Thomas Aquinas, lead to the conclusion that God exists demonstrably. But they don't lead to the conclusion that Christians or Catholics have the correct view of God. Um, the God of Christianity is triune. But confessing faith in a triune God is precisely a confession of faith. It's a matter of belief. It's not a matter of rational proof. Um, so you can nevertheless glean a number of things about God from these proofs, which is part of the reason I think why there are five and the way they're structured and so on. You can conclude that God is eternal, that he is being itself and other things besides. But there is a distinction in Aquinas and an important one at that between faith and knowledge. You can't have faith and knowledge with respect to the same thing. Because if you know something, then you don't believe it, you know it. And if you don't know it, then you might believe it, you might not believe it. So when you know that something is true, like when, when somebody performs a mathematical truth for you, the intellect assents to the truth. It's readily apparent. When you know something, you know it. Um, but when you believe in something, there's an act of choice involved. You may or may not choose to believe something. So the existence of God, for many people, is a matter of belief. But according to Aquinas, for those people who understand the logic of these proofs, it, the existence of God is a matter of knowledge. Such people who understand these things, he would say, don't believe in God. They know that God exists. They might believe things about him, but they, they know that God exists. Okay, so I'll get started looking at the first line of the proof, giving you um, the translation with the original text so you can follow along. And what he says is that the first and more manifest way is the argument from motion. And right off the bat, there is much to say about this first line. The first thing to point out is that the word motion is a direct translation of the Latin word motus, which does indeed mean something like movement or motion. But the meaning of the term in Latin is broader than the English term. Uh, it means something more like change. And not just change in place, not locomotion, not change in place, but just change broadly considered. So when you hear this, what you should have in mind is the general concept of change. And not really change uh, from one kind of thing to another kind of thing, um, but more like change in quality. So, you know, a pot grows hot on a stove, a kitten grows into a cat. Um, that kind of change, change, change in the description of something. And um, you can think about change in, in kind, too. I think that the proof applies to that, but it's easier if you're focused on a sort of qualitative change. So an Aquinas explains the meaning of this term, this word motion, uh, in more detail in a bit, so I'll, I'll move on. The second line is that it is certain and evident to our senses that some things in the world are in motion. And again, there's a lot to say. Um, the translation's fine, but it's easy to overlook a very important feature of this translation, uh, which is that the word, there's one Latin word that's translated into three English words, are in motion. And if you look across on the left side, you'll see that the, the Latin word is movere, um, which is in the passive voice. And that doesn't really come across in the English. Some things are in motion. Really, what it says in Latin, perhaps more accurately, is that some things are moved. 
or are being moved. So the Latin says that there are things that are being acted upon. Not that things are just changing randomly, but that things are acted upon. So some things are being moved it's in the passive voice. And one of the crucial elements of this proof is that nothing in the world moves itself. And that point is reflected here in Aquinas's choice to use the passive voice. Things are being moved. The implication is by other things. There's something else doing the moving. The thing is not changing itself. But so far, I think that we should take the first premise of Aquinas's argument as uncontroversial, or at least I hope you do. Some things in the world, just some things, not everything, some things in the world are being moved. That is, they are undergoing change. They are being changed by other things. It seems pretty obvious. The sun warms the ground, which then warms the air, which causes the air to rise, which causes a vacuum, which causes wind to blow in order to fill the vacuum. The wind cools off a pie resting on a window. A boy smells it. He gets hungry. And then voila, the sun just indirectly caused an act of pie theft. But each of these changes, each of the steps in this sequence of events entails there being a chain wherein each thing that is moving is being moved by another thing. And that takes us to Aquinas' second point. He says, whatever is in motion is put in motion by another, for nothing can be in motion except as it is in potentiality to that which is in motion, whereas a thing moves inasmuch as it is in act. Now, I don't think that many people here, I hope, would quibble with the assertion that some things change. The ancient Greeks might. If you read Zeno's Paradox and so on, you can find some really interesting, wacky ideas about how things don't actually change and all change is illusory. But if you can accept the premise that all things change, or some things change, and we're in good, uh, good, good shape. But one thing you might wonder is, is it really the case that all things that are in motion, that are changing, are being changed by something else? Can nothing change itself? And this is where the Aristotelian roots of this logic become helpful. You can find these same, these same arguments in, in Aristotle's text. And um, looking at Aristotle helps decipher this a bit. In order to get at this problem, whether anything moves itself, whether anything causes itself to change, uh, you have to look at Aristotle's definition of change. And the definition of change that Aristotle gives, which is repeated by, Latin, uh, by Aquinas in Latin here, is motion is the reduction of potency to act. Okay, so act and potency are Aristotelian ideas. Aristotle came up with them in order to explain the problem of change, because as I said before, there were in fact people who denied that things changed in Aristotle's day. And there were also people who denied the opposite, uh, that's, that things are stable. And Aristotle wanted to argue that some things are stable and other things change and that there is subsistence through change. When things change, there's something that remains the same, but nevertheless things change. So he has to explain both constancy and inconstancy simultaneously. So he uses 
these concepts of act and potency in order to explain how both things are true. Some things remain stable over time and some things change over time. Um, those of you who have taken physics, which I imagine is everyone in this room, will probably remember the concepts of kinetic energy and potential energy. That's just an application of, Arist of Aristotle's um, ideas of act and potency. That's literally just taken from the text of Aristotle, applied to a particular problem, and, and given new names. Um, the distinction in particular is the, the Aristotelian distinction doesn't just reply to those kinds of uh, physical mechanics that kinetic and potential energy does, but really to everything. So act, trying to get at the definitions of these terms, act and potency, act refers simply to things that are. My eye is my eye and a glass of water is a glass of water. Potency refers to things that could be, but aren't. And so potency is a kind of weird thing that doesn't really exist, but is also real. It's kind of midway between being and non-being. Because it's, it's actually quite important to, to recognize this. So my, if my eye is shut, for example, it is potentially a seeing eye. A glass of water is potentially a pile of wet shards on the floor. It might sound very trite, these are very basic examples, but it's actually really insightful that, that Aristotle explains things like this. It allows us to understand change better because potency is real, even if things, even if it refers to things that don't actually exist. The, the glass on the table is not potentially an airplane. Um, a marble is not potentially a statue. Like maybe you could take a, a glass of water and melt the glass and, and turn it into a part of an airplane window or something like that. And that's true, but thinking about what something is gives you an immediate sense of what it could be given requisite action upon it. And then it becomes immediately clear that certain materials are better for certain tasks than other ones, and that's all due to potency. So potency is a really helpful concept for trying to understand the way things change. Okay, so things exist, and they have certain potencies, and so we can think about the way things can change and the way they can't. And this is the kind of change that the proof is based on. Something coming to be in a different way, a pot on a stove going from a state of being cold to a state of being hot. The pot on the stove that's cold is potentially hot, it isn't actually hot. If it were actually hot, it wouldn't be potentially hot. So the motion, the change, again, in the definition of Aristotle, is the reduction of something from potency to act. The Latin is a bit clearer. The word reduction is a translation of educere, which is to lead out of. So you draw potency out of something. Uh, but an agent has to do this. So change means something, to, sorry, to change something means to take what is potential in that thing and cause it to be actual. The potentially hot pot becomes actually hot. So now we're at the crux of the matter again. Whatever is in motion, Aquinas says, is put into motion by something else. In other words, nothing moves itself. Everything is moved by something else. You'll notice that this sounds a lot like Newton's first law of motion. 
And that's in fact because just like with kinetic and potential, potential energy, Newton's first law of motion is a narrowing of Aristotle's principle. If you, and I think that for the modern mind, it's usually pretty easy to accept Newton's first law. But if you accept Newton's first law, then you should probably also accept this argument that nothing moves itself. So why is this the case, that nothing can move itself? This is probably the most controversial point in the proof, I think. And Aristotle gives some explanations in the physics, in his work, The Physics. So I'll summarize a few of his points to try and make the argument a bit more robust. It's first worth pointing out how intuitive this is. In other words, if you were in the woods at night and you heard a noise, you would ask where it came from. What caused the air to reverberate in such a way? You don't just think, well, noises just happen spontaneously. You think, oh, crap, what's about to eat me? You know, you, you, you hear, you, you, whenever you encounter something new that's unexpected, your immediate reaction is to question where it came from, right? So there's the argument from intuition. Um, but A Aristotle also adds an inductive argument for this principle, which is simply a series of examples. And it's not completely demonstrative, but it is somewhat compelling because if you think of any change, think of any example you want, you'll find that, sorry, any example you want of something trying to change, where you think something's changing itself. Consider an example where you see something is changing itself. If you think about it enough, what you'll find is that the change is rather caused by parts, where one part of a thing is changing another part of a thing. And that there's no one subject that is itself the subject of what something is before a change and what it is after a change. So you can think of all kinds of changes. A rock falls when whatever, what is, whatever is holding it up is removed. A kitten grows into a cat because of internal mechanisms that it did not give itself. Leaves fly around in the air because the wind blows them and so on. You always see some dependency. Whenever there's change, there's always an agent causing it. And then when you look at that agent, you see that its causal efficacy comes from something else and so on and so forth. The more technical explanation for why nothing changes itself the explanation that Aquinas gives is related to the metaphysical principle that from nothing, nothing comes, or nothing gives what it doesn't have. Potency is real, but it isn't something. And to change is to be moved from potency to act. But the thing about being in potency to something is precisely that something that is in potency to something else does not have that actuality that it lacks. So if it did, it wouldn't change into that thing. It would already be that thing. The pot on the stove is not hot unless it is heated, so it does not have heat. It cannot be, it must be given heat by something else. So anything that changes is in potency to the thing that it changes into, and it, it therefore acquires the act of the new thing that it is and that actuality is always provided by something else that already has it. There are a couple of easy objections people raise to this idea, like, um, you know, what about a sculpture who changes the block of marble into a statue or of a horse? What about um, a piece of a fire that turns a piece of paper black? The sculptor is not a horse, 
He doesn't have the shape of a horse, but he makes them marvel to adopt it. Uh, fire does not have blackness, so how does it cause the paper to acquire that actuality of blackness? In the case of the sculptor, the sculptor actually, I would argue, does have the shape of, his ho of a horse, but it's in his mind and he's able to impart it through his tools. And in the second case, indeed, fire does not impart blackness to paper that it burns, but it does impart heat. And it is of the nature of paper to turn black when it is heated. So the fire does provide some actuality to the paper that causes it to change in some way. This is the kind of thing I think that, you know, once you understand the logic behind it, it seems pretty clear. Um, but if you object to it, it's kind of difficult to to argue for it further. It's kind of it's, it's this kinds of proof is really as, as far as you can go into demonstrating this, I think. Um, in order to be convinced of it, you just it requires more reflection. And I think that proofs of this kind inevitably end up at this kind of place where you're left with a principle that you have to reflect more on. And there's no further thing to appeal to in order to prove this. For example, there are other things like this. Um, in his work on metaphysics, Aristotle defends what he calls the principle of non-contradiction. It's impossible for something both to be and not to be the same thing at the same time and in the same respect. You can't be both X and not X at the same time. But the thing is that you can't prove that. Because if you try to prove it, any proof that you make will presuppose it, and you haven't actually proved it, because then you're question begging. But the thing is that you can still see that it's true, because you, not only can you rationally understand it, and not only can you multiply examples of its veracity, but on top of all of that, uh, Aristotle argues brilliantly that if you attempt to disprove it, you'll end up presupposing it, and that itself suggests that it's true. So the same thing is kind of true with this argument that nothing changes itself, it's helpful to multiply examples and try to think about them and think about what's changing what. And you'll always see that the subject of change is not providing the actuality that it is acquiring from something else. There's always another agent. Okay, the basic principle before I move on is that if anything is in potency to Y, this means that it does not have the actuality of Y Otherwise, it would already be Y. And since it doesn't have that actuality, it must acquire it from some other source. That's the logic. Okay, I think that what I've said so far makes the next few lines pretty clear, so I'll move on. The next premise, after showing that that which is in motion must be put in motion by another, is that that other thing must also be put in motion by another. If x changes y, um, then x is changed by something else, which is itself changed by something else, and so on. Anytime you consider a, a causal chain of events, you always, you always see that there's dependency. Whenever there's change going on, there's, there's something that is causing it to happen. And then when you identify that cause, there's something else that's causing that to happen, and so on. Now, Aquinas argues that there can't be an infinite chain of movers. And this is perhaps the second most controversial point. There can't be an infinite chain of movers. Why not? And the key distinction to understand this argument is between what Aquinas elsewhere calls, he calls it in his 
in the Summa Contra Gentiles, you can see it there. He doesn't use this distinction here, but it's operative. The distinction is between an accidentally ordered chain of movers and a per se ordered chain of movers. So this is the difference. In an accidentally ordered chain, A moves B and B moves C, but the effect that A has on B stops before B moves C. So for example, I have a mother, believe it or not, I didn't spring up out of the earth, and my mother also has a mother, and her mother has a mother, but the thing is that if my mother were suddenly to die, I wouldn't cease to exist. First of all, I'm my, I have a mother, and I'm a product of her generative capacity, and I myself have generative capacity. My mother, however, did not cause me to be a father. It's entirely causally separate. I have that capacity on my own. Well, I need a, I need a wife, but I don't want to get into the details there. Um, the point is that uh, my mother's causality ends at some point. It stops having an effect on me, and I'm able to do things without her providing causal force, as it were. But in a per se ordered chain, every element of the chain uh, depends upon every other element of the chain or every element that's prior to it in the chain um, for its causal efficacy. So the difference is, is like instead of thinking about, you know, I exist and I came from my mother and she came from her mother and so on, instead think of a train. Um, every car on a train has to be pulled by the preceding car because no car has the, has the ability to move itself. So there's a locomotive in front. So Aquinas's point is that, like a train, wherein each car has to be connected to another car, if you were to understand what a train is, you must reason to the existence of a locomotive, because you don't actually, you, there has to be a source of motion. What he's arguing is that when you consider change around us, um, each thing that is changing is being changed by something else, depends on other things for its change, and there's a, so there's a chain of dependence where each thing that is changing something else depends for its ability to change the other thing on something else. So you can't have an infinite chain of dependency because then the chain requires an explanation for its existence. You can consider another example for um, Let's say, you know, my diaphragm is constricting my lungs, that forces air through my vocal cords, that causes reverberations in the air, that causes your eardrums to vibrate, that then causes action potentials to go through your neurons, and so on and so forth. In such examples of per se ordered causal chains, A causes B to cause C. It's not the case that A causes B and then A stops affecting B and then B then causes C. It's rather that A causes B and gives B the ability to cause C. So there's this dependence on the, on the elements of the chain. So an infinite chain of dependence doesn't make sense because everything that depends on something depends on something. Every train needs a locomotive. So what the argument leads to is the conclusion that every per se ordered chain of movers must terminate in a mover that is not itself moved, but that moves other things. So it can't be moved, because if it did, it wouldn't solve the problem. It depends on something else. 
So there has to be an immobile, an unmovable source. So let's consider again any kind of qualitative change you want. A kitten grows into a cat, I produce a sound, a pot grows hot on a stove, whatever. When you consider that change, you then ask what caused it. And when you find an answer, you will then find that the thing's causal efficacy to affect change was itself dependent on something else. And then when you consider that thing, you will again find dependency. The only way to solve this problem is to posit the existence of something that undergirds all of these changes, that renders them possible and indeed makes them happen, but is itself unmoved. And it must be unmoved because if it were moved, the problem wouldn't be solved. It would just be relocated. And this, Aquinas says, this thing that undergirds all change, that makes all change possible, is the source of all motion. This is God. He kind of boldly says, all understand this to be God. Now, a few things follow from this conclusion. The proof doesn't just lead to the existence of an eternal mover. It also demonstrates some things about God. First, I'd say, again, it doesn't really prove the existence of the Christian God as such. But we have arrived at the conclusion that there exists something that is the source of all motion in the world, that undergirds all change, and that enables everything that does happen to happen. And indeed, I think many would say, this is God. Second, what this also shows is that God is eternal, that is changeless. He does not exist in time. Aristotle defines time very helpfully as the quantity of motion with respect to before and after. In other words, things that do not change at all do not exist in time because before and after cannot be predicated of them. There's no before and after with God. Consequently, what this shows is that God does not exist in time. That's what we mean by saying that he's eternal. Third, I'd also point out that what this shows is that a number of common refutations of this proof, the kinds you would find in the works of Richard Dawkins or Carl Sagan, if you go back enough in time, are quite silly. Dawkins and Sagan both argue that this argument doesn't work because it's question-begging. What they say is that if you posit God as the explanation for the existence of the universe, then you have to ask, well, where did God come from? Or who created God? Why not just say that the universe simply exists or that it spontaneously came to exist out of nothing? But the failure in their counter-argument is a failure to distinguish between these accidentally and per se ordered chains of causality that I've been describing. If the argument were based on an accidentally ordered causal chain, the criticism would be valid. But in fact, it's based on a per se ordered causal chain, which means that God is posited as something entirely different from every other member in the causal chain. God is posited as, posited as something that precisely does not depend on anything else for its, his causal efficacy. Otherwise, the argument would be useless. God has to be utterly different and the ground of all explanations. Otherwise, the argument doesn't work. Now, I'll, I'll just briefly mention some things about Aquinas' second proof, just because um, a lot of the logic 
you can just kind of hit copy paste and start with a different example in front and then reach a, the same conclusion. Um, the second way is a lot like the first way. It approaches the same problem from a different angle. And for Aquinas, the second way is based on what he calls the efficient cause. So the efficient cause, for those who aren't familiar with Aristotle's um, four-dimensional causality, an efficient cause is not just a cause that works quickly or something like that. It's a productive cause. It's a cause that makes something to be. Uh, Aristotle taught that the word cause, he defined the word cause as the answer to the question why, which I think is just a brilliant way of putting it. And he said that there are four ways of answering the question why. So you consider the, a table, for example. Why a table? Well, there's wood there. That's the material cause, he called it. The wood has a particular shape. That's what he calls the formal cause. Somebody put it there. Somebody made it. That's the efficient cause. And why? Well, to put things on. So that's the final cause. That's the purpose. So what we're looking at is the agent, the person who made something. Now, as with the first way, Aquinas' first point is that nothing is the efficient cause of itself. In other words, nothing causes itself to exist. Now, a house requires a builder. A baby dog does not exist without a mama dog and a papa dog. So is this argument the same as the previous one? No. The difference is that before we were talking about movers, which change things. Now we're talking about producers that cause things to exist. But the logic is otherwise the same. Nothing causes itself to exist. Why not? Because everything that exists is made to exist by something else that already exists. Nothing that doesn't exist can bring itself into existence. Um, furthermore, something that does not exist, something that does not exist cannot make itself exist. So existence is something that has to be imparted by something else that already has it. So the conclusion is that everything. Um, everything depends on something else for its existence. And you can again think of anything that exists. I'm sure it's not hard to find an example. There are lots of things that exist. And when you think of anything, again, you can ask yourself, what does this depend on for its existence? And you'll always find an answer. Everything depends on something else. But again, we can't have an infinite system of depending an infinite chain of dependency because then the system itself, the chain itself requires an explanation. So we have one and that's that there is something that doesn't have to be made to exist and in fact is existence. That's the conclusion Aquinas draws. God is existence. God is existence itself. He does not um, depend on anything else for his existence and because that's be, the reason is because for him to be and to exist are the same without that division between essence and existence between what something is and that it is God is able to be the source of all existence and impart existence to things that don't exist and make them to exist consequently we've arrived at again the source of all being the thing that provides everything else with its existence and enables it to exist and God, again, is not one being among many in a system or in a chain, but is radically different from all the other things that depend on him. He is rather being itself, and all other things derive their being from him.